Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm Adam Lundy, joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello guys, how are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Man, I'm doing well, but I think, uh, Zach, most importantly, how are you? I'm okay. Uh, for anyone uh, here, I was uh, I got COVID on monday so uh at least that's when i was diagnosed with covid was on monday so i've been kind of feeling the recovery part of that and hasn't been too bad i guess in comparison to what it could have been how did uh any any bad take you have on this episode we can blame on covid now i don't have bad takes so it's fine (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i got i got covid at the start of the year uh, around sort of February-ish time and um, you know it kind of sucked for a few days and then I got over it and I recovered and then about three weeks afterwards I got the worst flu I've ever had in my life and it wasn't COVID as I did multiple tests but it was like the worst flu ever it was actually worse than COVID so there was like a five-week period where like four out of the five weeks I was just horribly ill <laughs> with different ailments um, no so like it's what you're saying is so true. Okay, so I, I you know we've had friends that have um, like like under under forty that have died from COVID. So I'm not trying to minimize it, especially when it was at its peak. But <clears throat> there's this whole discussion right now around giving giving the vaccine to your kids, and I don't think we're gonna do it because you know our five year old his entire well almost his whole class had it. He had 15 kids in his class, and 12 of them got it. And the most they were ever sick for, like symptoms wise, was three days. And luckily he never got it. I don't know how, somehow we've avoided it. But like, I, I just, I don't know. The, I mean, we have the vaccines and the boosters and all that. Like, go do it, you know. And, and if you wanted to have your kids do it, I'm fine with that. I'm not trying to make a stance here. But when we look at the three days kind of with minor symptoms, maybe like 100 degree fever for a day or two, I don't know that I'm ready to give him a vaccine just yet. Right, we'll yep. see what happens. You know, I would have never guessed Chris was an anti-vaxxer. That's all I got from the entire <laughs> No, I've missed work three different times because my body reacts violently to that vaccine. But um, when it's, yeah, like it's something about, I don't know, doing that in your kids, it's like, now we'll see what happens if he winds up getting it. He'll be the one that gets it severe and I'll be regretting it. But I think we're going to hold off for at least a year just to let it kind of mature in the marketplace a little bit. So there's... I mean, it, 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 it's definitely like interesting because there isn't a lot like there's testing, obviously, and it is important that it come out as quickly as possible. But it's not to the extent of like what we know about polio or yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. mumps or anything like that. Um, you know, I think that when I look back to my parents talk about it, like my dad, um, his sister actually had polio. My parents are super old, in case anyone's curious, like they're very mm-hmm. much older. Um and then my mom had mumps and measles. So, you know, when it was time for us to get vaccinations, that's all they could think about. Like, yeah, if, they, if there's a needle that it exists, go ahead and stick it with them. Like, don't even worry about it. Doesn't matter. We're not going to research any of it. Just throw it in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get, <laughs> I get it when you've lived through it. It's like, yeah, I, I, I understand. Well, yeah, I have to be real careful. We don't make this into something that's going to piss off half of our <laughs> listeners. But, but isn't polio like coming back in pockets of California, like different different pockets of the world, like people are getting polio again or something? I've heard there's some cases where it's come back. Yeah, and I mean that's the same thing with um, I can't think of smallpox. Whooping, whooping cough was another one. Whooping cough. Yeah. Uh, about these things. It's, yeah, it's crazy. 
He definitely yeah. got all those shots. But anyways, not to not again, not to make it too political here. <laughs> yeah, let's let's steer away from political stuff and let's talk about how much we all hate the police. Um, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but we do have um, we we will have some controversial takes, but of the movie variety a little bit later on. Yeah. Uh, we'll save that for a bit of a treat. Um, today's episode is going to be all about um horror movies obviously it's it's that season like we discussed last episode is that season for horror movies um you've had a few sort of horror centric episodes so far this month and we're not going to stop here this will be the last episode of october um so we're, we're going to sort of go off again with a horror bang before we move into uh into november and um, so just before we get into the two films we're going to talk about today guys anyone want to highlight anything they've seen recently that they that they thought was good or any pickups you got recently well, I'm happy to go, but I'm, I mind might take just slightly longer. Zach, you want to go first? Or? Uh, no, you're good. You can go first. Okay, so I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. Um, it just, have you all ever had those days where all the sales orders, like the, I guess the post office worked together and they all came in the same day? <laughs> yeah, like, every like, once I, in a while. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Like I just got literally, I got three pickups from the Criterion sale. I got Lost Highway. Uh, I got a Wayne Wang movie, Chen is Missing. Um, and then I got the full Jean Vigo. So that was a, I thought that came in. And then I also got the shipment from Terracotta that came in overseas with a movie from 88 films on the run, a movie from Eureka, or the, at least a set from Eureka, the Angela Mao set, and then a set from Third Window Films, which was the second Nobuhiko Obayashi um, set that they've put out now. So I love that the director of Hausu is getting some love from Third Window Films. They have seven or eight of his movies out now. That looks like a nice set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. They, um, well, yeah. The the crazy thing to me about Third Window Films is that that guy Adam does most of everything, including I think he even did the graphic design for this set. Um, like the dude is crazy talented as a as a producer of discs. Um. But then the big one that I got in, I, I just, I kept it small on a lot of these sales. Um, but the one that I did, because the, yeah, I don't know if you all took part in the Scream Factory sale that just, or the Shout Factory sale that just happened, Spooktober or something. I didn't, but it, was it more than 5% this time? Yeah, the, no, that's the crazy thing, right? That, that like, there was some Blu-rays on there for like five bucks, six bucks. That's actually, yeah, that's actually a good. That's so why I don't. I'll be honest, I haven't looked in years because I'm just always kind of disappointed. No, I, I hate. I, like this that. is. I've been like hardcore collecting in the second second round of collecting for like three years now, and this is the only sale of theirs I've done. Same reason, right? Um, but uh, I got RoboCop two and three. Um, the Vincent Price collections that they've been putting out were only I forget what they were like twenty bucks or something for four movies. Yeah, they're great. And those are great sets too. I have all three. They're awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then I got the It's Alive trilogy um, because I've got, I need to revisit those. And then they put out a Larry Fessenden box, which is cool. We talk about Ty West a lot on here. Um, Ty West was an intern for Larry Fessenden. I love Larry Fessenden. I'm always happy when I see him in some random movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. He's great. But anyways, that's what I've been doing uh, collecting wise. And then watching this whole week i was watching all the stuff that we're going to talk about today i had to watch like five movies for this episode <laughs> um on the other hand yeah, i had to watch zero nice yeah <laughs> I, I imagine all right what about you zach what have you been watching um bind wise actually was 
um, I I had pre-ordered Halloween Ends, the Savi. They had like two steel books, but they actually didn't realize that I forgot Savi doesn't like charge as soon as you pre-order. It actually waits until it ships, which is surprisingly nice. Um, so I was like, oh, well, this kind of helps my budget a little bit. So mm-hmm. I was like, at first I was like, let me look at Vinegar Syndrome. I'm going to go ahead and see if I can buy a few things that's been on my list for a while. And then somehow, I, don't, I can't even explain, I ended up on Severin. So um ended up actually buying three things from Severin, which will hopefully be here tomorrow. I bought their 4K of the Changeling, yeah. which is supposed to be out officially on Tuesday, I think, but I should have it tomorrow. Um, Don't Go in the House, which I've never seen. Sounded pretty cool, though. And then Cannibal Man, which I love nice. that movie. It's fantastic. Um, it ended up being a pretty good price. I'm sure they'll have a better sale next month than I could have just waited, but oh well. Um, that's kind of been my, my main purchases, so hopefully I'll be able to check them out tomorrow and watching wise i've just uh it's it's been a lot of horror <laughs> um uh, for obvious reasons uh but i rewatched ravenous have you guys ever seen that nope it's a, it, it's a horror western um that came out at the end of uh the two, uh, end of the 90s whereas like guy pierce it has david arquette uh robert carlisle it has a great cast to it uh, but it was it was kind of nice because I'd seen it years ago and it was one of those ones that was really nice to revisit because I remember just kind of thinking it was okay. And then it was one of those rare ones that just clicks with you like the second time you watch mm-hmm. it. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, I think because the first time I watched it, I really didn't think it was going to be like this dark comedy. And I think I was more prepared for that the second time and I was a lot more into it because of that. I think the first time I was like, oh, I was kind of hoping this was going to be like a serious Wendigo movie. And it is, I mean, it plays itself pretty straight, but it definitely like uses music that's well not should be in the scenes, but I, it feels very intentional. Um, but yeah, that's kind of been mine. Anything for you, Adam? Sorry, sorry, really quick. When you Google search Ravenous, mm-hmm. the review that comes up from Rotten Tomato, <laughs> I thought this was the official description, but it's just the review that happens to pop up. Ravenous is a stupid black comedy set in the same place and same year, but a more Western version of Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I do want to see it. The cast is stacked. Sorry, go ahead, Adam. Uh, No no pickups for me at the moment. I will be getting the Criterion Lost Highway when it comes out here next week. It doesn't come out here until um, until the 30th, so I'll be picking that up then. Uh, Like you, Zach, just been watching a lot of horror um, this month, obviously. Um, one that I kind of liked the most from the last week or so since we last spoke when I gave a big list of things that I watched was uh, a really famous horror that I'd never seen before but everyone else has uh, Poltergeist uh, from Toby Hooper Um, I didn't expect it to be as fun as it was Um, like they could have very easily made this into a horror comedy um, just with some tweaks as there's a lot of like tongue-in-cheek and kind of humorous moments throughout the film it's almost like i kind of walked away from it thinking this is kind of like national lampoon's haunted house um you could definitely like supplant the cast with like the cast of like you know the griswolds with like chevy chase and stuff you could very easily just change those cast members and it becomes a comedy film um but it does have a lot of really effective moments in it as well Uh, i really enjoyed it me and eve watched it together she liked it as well um so that's kind of like the best horror movie that i've seen in the past week or so apart from the two that we're we're going to be talking about shortly well and you know um you talk about it being almost like a comedy that's kind of hooper in a lot of ways right like the 
borderline on it being so absurd it's kind of funny like even when you take like texas chainsaw massacre where he intended for it to be a comedy uh because it's it gets so over the top and you know i think it goes the other way and becomes terrifying but i think that's just <laughs> kind of him in a nutshell yeah, um, yeah there's just not there's just a, a lot of nice little sort of visual things that happen um and even just kind of subtle things like how in like poltergeist they like <laughs> subtly reference that the, the eldest daughter is a bit of a slut uh, throughout the movie. Um, like when she knows exactly what Holiday Inn they're going to uh, and the mother kind of does like a bit of a double take. like, wait, wait, why do you know this hotel? Um, yeah, there's just a lot of little like just subtle things throughout the film um, that, that I thought was fun. And th- the film is just good fun. It doesn't like even has, even though it has like quite serious themes, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, I can definitely see Spielberg's influence, you know, on it as well. There's a lot of rumors that he he basically co-directed the film. Or, and if you uh, want me yeah. to rant about about that rumor, I definitely can. But I don't know if we want this podcast to be like three hours. Yeah, long. we don't want to. Maybe for <laughs> maybe maybe for another time. But his influence can be felt. I'll I'll just I'll go I'll go as far as that anyway. Um, but I digress. We'll we'll move on to our actual sort of feature presentations for this episode. So. Uh, I chose two films um, from a sort of similar enough time frame. They were made three years apart. When one of them was in 1960, the other was in 1957. And I, I chose them for one specific reason. And then as I rewatched them this week, I realized I actually unconsciously linked them in another way as well. So they're both films. This is the obvious reason why I chose them was that they both kind of deal with the ideas of witchcraft and Satanism in a sort of modern world. Um, they're not like folk horror in the same way that something like the blood and Satan's claw would be. Um, they're very much sort of set in the, in the modern world or the contemporary world, but they deal with these sort of witchcraft, Satan worshiping themes. That was why I thought they'd be a good pairing. And but then as I watched them both, I realized that both films, they're, they're horror films, but they also have a lot of noirish elements to them. Um, they're, they're almost like horror noirs. I don't know if you guys got that vibe as well. Um, yeah, I was going to make fun of you for that. I was like, on a horror <laughs> week, you still managed to get into noir films. Yeah, yeah. And I, I swear it was unconscious because I didn't I didn't really <laughs> remember them properly because it's been it's been over a year since I've seen both of these films. So it wasn't something that initially stuck with me. Um, and it was only when I was watching City of the Dead and it goes it's very it's very horror for the first half. But then it kind of goes a bit from noir in the second half. But uh, the next film, the second film, uh, is is a lot more on you know in your face with the with the noirist elements. But we'll we'll get into that as each film comes up. So uh, I've already name dropped it now. So we'll start with this one, uh, the City of the Dead. I think it was marketed originally as like horror hotel or something stupid like that in the mm-hmm. US. Um, it was made in 1960 by a guy called John Llewellyn Moxie. Uh, who didn't really have uh, much of a career. This seems to be like one of the few kind of feature films he made. Just to give a kind of brief synopsis, uh, a young college student arrives in a sleepy Massachusetts town to research witchcraft. During her stay at an eerie inn, she discovers a startling secret about the town and its inhabitants. So this was, like I said, this is my second time watching this film. Zach, I know that you've seen it as well. Chris, I think this was your first time watching this. Is that right? For, for everything today. Yeah. Yeah. First Perfect. time for, for all, all the things today. Do you want to jump in with your initial thoughts? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, okay, let me just uh, switch back over here. So the City of the Dead, aka Horror Hotel. Um, 
They shoot zombies, which is that list that we're talking about all of a sudden a little bit more in October now. <laughs> um, it has this as the 381st best horror film of all time. Yeah, I can and, that. Yeah, it's hard for me to know when you start getting into like genre. It, it's, you know, top 1000 means something different, I think, than every film ever made. <laughs> um, but um, they shoot pictures as a little less kind as it is 8289, so 8289. Um, this is a, this John Nolan Moxie, I was curious, I was, how I've never ever heard of this guy before, like at all. Um, and he was a big TV director, it seems. So I don't know if he did, this was his only feature film or just did a few, but there's like, he has like a hundred credits or something on TV. So he's kind of a, kind of a TV guy. Um, but anyways, so, yeah, Horror Hotel was okay. Um, I like the fact that it was 75 minutes. Um, it's interesting. I've been going through the uh, this Christopher Lee box set from Severin, the, the Eurocrypt of, of uh, Christopher Lee, the first one. So I've been seeing a lot of Christopher Lee in the last uh, two weeks or so. Um, so I was kind of happy to be seeing this. Uh, and I think the things that I liked about it the most were... Uh, the creepiness that that came in, I think they did. I was almost thinking of this as like a, uh, it would be a great watch with Wicker Man or something, um, like the original Wicker Man. Yeah. Uh, it just has a good kind of creepy vibe. I think they set up atmosphere well. Uh, and um, I think that the ending, whatever, 20 minutes or so, definitely kind of pulled this in for me and made it a film I liked a lot. But um, yeah, what about y'all? Yeah, that, like, that was the creepiness is definitely something that that struck me when I first watched it. And again, when I watched it, you know, last week, um, like the aesthetics, uh, the, the cinematography, the mass and whatever you want to call it, it's just incredible in this film. It looks so good. Um, the way they designed the sets and just the way they, they sort of cast light and shadow is just really, really uh, engaging, really startling. Um <laughs> I was I thought of this during the week and I thought it might be uh, funny to ask you guys what do you which budget do you think was bigger the budget for sun cream on fat girl or for smoke machines this film <laughs> <laughs> these are the hard-hitting questions <laughs> yeah there's a lot of fog and smoke in this I mean film. are we accounting for inflation or is it straight numbers <laughs> uh, no a great but, uh, question yeah, like, I, I really, really loved this film. Um, it was just one of those sleeper watches that I just came across randomly on Shudder. I was putting together a watch list on Shudder when I, when I first got the service a year ago. And I was just looking for like sort of old creaky horror films because I like creaky horror films, like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. That's kind of, I, I like those films a lot, um, including the films of the director we're going to talk about later. Um and I just, I just, I knew nothing about this film going into it. And it just blew me away. Just the visuals um, blew me away. I, I think the story is kind of interesting how the plot is put together. So this film came out in 1960. If I was to ask you guys, what's the most famous film that came out in 1960? What would you say? I'm glad you're going to steal my talking point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad someone has picked up on it. Uh, go on, put, put, put listeners out of their misery. What's the most famous uh, film from 1960? It's definitely Psycho. Psycho. Why does this film have so many plot beats that are similar to Psycho? 
Now, I haven't read the book Psycho, so I don't know if, like, that was prevalent enough to where, like, ooh, that's a good idea to kill off the, you know, your main character a third of the way through the film, but... Yeah. It was interesting, right? And I wouldn't have thought much of it if it wasn't the sibling comes to investigate right Exactly! Like, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the whole thing. It's, it's, you know, we have the blonde, she ends up in a creepy hotel, she gets dispatched by the owner of that hotel a third of the way through the film when you think that she's the lead. And then a man has to come and try and, you know, figure out what's happened to her afterwards and also travels to the same location. It's just like the exact same plot beats as Psycho. And they came out, I think I looked it up. I swear they released in theaters the same month. That's insane. That's I think crazy. they both released in September. Um, and they're both, I, I guess Psycho's can still considered a British production, isn't it? Is it not? I can't remember. No, no, that's definitely American because okay. it, was, it was produced by the same people who were who had done all those films up until that point because the reason why psycho is in black and white is because True. they didn't want to finance it and he had to use his crew from um his tv show alfred hitchcock presents that's right, so, that's right. yeah that was definitely still an american production i actually don't know if the city of the dead is is a british or an american production because obviously it takes place in america but it's filmed in britain uh it was filmed I did, in britain i thought i saw it it was in yeah. that studio is that they did the hammer films is that right Yes, uh, but yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this isn't a Hammer production, but I no. do think they used a lot of their stuff. Yeah, it looks I that way too. Yeah, yeah, 19... I thought I recognized the studio name. Something was going on with with children that were born in the 30s and 40s, though. 60s, 1960s specifically was a crazy year in horror. Because you got like, Peeping Tom that year too. Peeping yeah, Tom, Peeping Tom, uh, same year. Yeah, you had Baba's Black Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 13 Ghosts, Village of the Damned, Eyes Without a Face, which we've kind of, we've talked yeah. about on here. And then this one. So anyways, yeah, there's, and also, uh, I think, was this the year of Charlie Brown's Great Pumpkin? I don't know. I which is the scariest the real, one of all of Yeah, actually, the one that really changed horror forever. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been later, but. <laughs> but it it yeah. is interesting, because, I mean, the 60s, always, 1960 feels like the perfect place of where horror really changes, like. Mm-hmm significantly um 70s is obviously gets a lot of the but everything that the 70s did got influenced here because you had your like you mentioned you had baba you had hitchcock um kind of setting up a lot of the stuff that would kind of become part of you guys are better with wave stuff but hollywood new wave really starts in the 70s right yeah exactly new hollywood is in the 70s the kind of first branch of filmmakers who kind of grew up studying film but I, you know, the, you, we talk about Night of the Hunters being this outlier for the '50s, and and yeah. how almost ahead of its time it was. Um, and I feel like this that type of movie, like the themes in Night of the Hunter, are so horrifying, mm-hmm. and then and the way that they tell that story is so horrifying. But it's still in that sort of '50s feeling, like it still feels like a '50s movie. They, you know, I think this is the thing I, I feel is interesting about a lot of the early '60s movies, is they still have that kind of old hollywood or old 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 style of filmmaking vibe and feel to them uh and yeah, a, lot of you don't shot really, a lot yeah you don't really get that changeover until night of the living dead yeah. um a lot like you said a lot of it's still very like you look at this film you look at like mario baba films they're very much all still on studio lots you know with fake backdrops and everything and i love that aesthetic i love that vibe of uh of fake backdrops and things like that um that's why i enjoyed we watched frankenstein obviously for the film club Mm -hmm. uh this week over on criterion conversation and again i I made neve sit down and watch it with me and i was just 
gushing the whole time at all the backdrops even though like they're so fake looking i just love that aesthetic yeah and i love when films do that you know and, and obviously city of the dead does that as well uh, in this kind of uh, fake sleepy new england village vibe they have going on yeah and, and in full transparency it always takes me a minute to kind of get get into that because i don't love the studio vibe as much the, the obvious backdrop, like the the feeling that it's it's everything is set up as like a, a set. Mm-hmm. Um, it always takes me. So it, this one, it took me a little bit longer to get into, but it's, you know, a good movie will trump, I think, any reservations you have about it in the first 15 minutes, right? I think this is one, this is one that won me over because it's, uh, it's cool the way they tell the story. And I think it's interesting the way that they like commit so much to the, um, what do they call it? The, not good. Not, what's the the holiday that they what are the the something eve um all hallows eve no no no, no. well 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 purchase or something like that well purchase might anyways yeah whatever that is yeah. they the, the way that they commit to that night and the importance of it uh it was, it was very cool i thought it was very it made it made it creepy um kind of going towards the set stuff i think the reason and it, you know i don't know if yours is the same reason adam i think the reason it's always been like something i've loved i'm just like you is because it feels like the perfect thing for halloween like when you go and look outside and you see people who set up their own like little tombstone stuff and they set up their own little yeah. sets and there's there's this very halloween feel to everything like i love universal monsters but it's something I watch mostly in October. I don't usually watch them all year round or anything, but it has that feeling to it. Like, you know, during the day you're just home, it's October, you throw it in and it just feels weirdly right to watch it then. Um, and and I, I think that's, I think that's, you know, it could be looked at as part of nostalgia too. Cause a lot of that was stuff I watched very young. This was, but I, I think these are just, you know, I love this film for that, even though I guess it's kind of the end of that sort of thing for the most part. Yeah. If I, I can't think of anything later that would have had that. Yeah, no, I'm the same in terms of like that, that aesthetic. I, I, I can't either. Like I was surprised when I first sort of looked this film up when I, when I finished watching it, like I was surprised it was made in 1960. You know, I would have, I would have placed it 10 years earlier than that. Yeah. Um, kind of early fifties. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying, Zach, in terms of like, you know, the fake gravestones, you know, the cardboard cutouts you'd have like in your, in your front yard and what you see in this film are kind of similar aesthetically. I never would have put two and two together, but now that you say it, it makes total sense. Um, and I'd agree. This is the kind of film, like these are the kind of horror films that you watch around that season. Like, I don't think I'd be sticking this on, you know, in April, um, Whereas there's other kinds of horror movies you can just kind of watch all year round. But for these kind of old style, I'm not going to say old because this is obviously a lot, this is 30 years after Frankenstein um, and Dracula. So I'm not going to lump this in, but kind of old style horror films um, definitely kind of, they, they, they match the, the vibes of October. So this had a, a what's the dollar to dollar equivalent of $450,000 budget? So this was also a pretty tight budget. It was forty-five thousand back in the day, um, but I, I think that that's if you're going to make the, you know one thing I do I do love about a lot of these low-budget horror films is if if it's done right you kind of lean into the atmosphere right and I think they knew what they were working with, and they had someone like Christopher Lee to go help choose scenery and then the amazing 
woman actress as well who was um was it patricia jessel was that the was that the one the the, the kind of main woman with the with the tied back hair mrs uh that's it yeah the one who's playing the witch elizabeth yeah. selwyn and then yeah. her her new name mrs newless which is just Selwyn yeah, yeah, all yeah. mixed up uh love that yeah she was awesome and her and christopher lee i think really carried this the, the tone wise Oh yeah, for sure. Look, if you want, if you need a creaky, oh, a creaky villain, and you know, yeah, if you need, if you need a creaky villain who's who's going to choose scenery, and Vincent Price isn't available, then you go to Christopher Lee. Um, I think Christopher mm-hmm. Lee maybe is a bit more stoic. So I suppose it depends which way you want to go. If you want someone to be a bit more kind of mwahaha kind of evil then you go with Vincent Price. If you want someone who's just going to stand in a corner and give you wide eyes and creep you the fuck out, then you go for Christopher Lee. Um, he's he's just, uh, you know, one of the iconic sort of villain, monstery, whatever horror actors along with, you know, Karloff and Lugosi. You have to put Christopher Lee in, in that category as well because he's just so good at playing that kind of wide-eyed, stoic, sort of evil character. Yeah. His hit. I know he, this is going to sound weird, but I almost view him it to horror analogous to like what you would say like a mime is to physical comedy or something. Like he has so much control of his body. Like going through this Christopher Lisa, that's one thing that really popped out is like his posture and like the way that he holds his body and and like just everything he does with his kind of face and and framing. <clears throat> like it's pretty impressive actually he's quite a physical actor um so i i think it helps so much because you know they just like there's a scene in uh one of the these movies i was going through where he has to kind of like walk upstairs and he's it he has his cape on and he's it looks like he's floating but it's just the way that his like the top half of his body doesn't move and it's like his his legs are moving somehow but this he is just, a great like, thing. This is a great thing yeah. for you to bring up, actually, because there's a moment. I don't know if you're, if you're kind of thinking this. Maybe this is the moment you're thinking of, and just kind of backwards. But when he's first introduced to when in in his Dracula movie, when we first kind of meet him uh, as you enter Castle Dracula, and he comes down the stairs, it looks like he's floating down the stairs. He's yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So maybe that's maybe I don't know if that's the moment you're thinking of, um, but th- that's definitely how it feels when in his in his Dracula movie where he's Dracula. He, he, he like glides down the stairs almost um, when he's first oh, introduced. Di- different movie, but same, same exact thing. And I think it, it shows here, you know, every time he speaks, it's like, even if they're not showing his whole body, he just, you're, you're, he just has this ability to kind of draw the attention in the scene, right? Just the way that he stares and like his command of the, the, the word, like the dialogue. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's different. Like it, it sets it apart. I think it makes every scene better. Yeah, I think he's I think he's very similar to Karloff because obviously everyone talks about Karloff at Frankenstein, where he doesn't obviously talk um you know coherently anyway. But in a lot of Karloff's other films where he does talk, he he definitely has that same kind of um that that that, that same kind mm-hmm. of um way of talking and, and way of delivering lines. And I've just read a bit of trivia about this film that <laughs> that's very interesting because apparently the script was originally written as a pilot for a TV series starring Karloff. So um uh, I, I guess i guess we're not the only ones maybe see the connection between those two i, I actually it does that makes sense though because this is a tv person right like this is a he spent his whole career in tv so 
with yeah. this and uh, what's the other movie that we were talking about recently that uh, Lynch did where it was meant to be a TV show and it got oh, all the drive. There you go. Thank you. Chance to bring Lynch up into every conversation. <laughs> yeah, I think we're two for two on movies that were uh, supposed to be TV shows being good. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the format. Set it up like a TV pilot. Yeah. So, uh, in in lieu of a of, of collection corner this week, we decided to do something a little bit different. So recently. Uh, and I say recently, literally in the last week or so, we got the release of the third film in David Gordon Green's Halloween sort of sequel trilogy with, with Halloween Ends. Um, as listeners may know, if they're sort of caught up with their Halloween news, the reception was divisive, to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to be a very, very Marmite film. A lot of people are really loving it. A lot of people are really hating it. Um, even more so to how divisive Halloween Kills was last year. So we thought it'd be fun. Obviously, me and Zach have been watching these as they've come out. Chris hadn't seen any of them. So we decided that we were just going to talk about all of them. Chris did a, a great pleasure of watching all three kind of back to back over the last couple of days. Um, so we just thought we'd talk about each film, just kind of give our takes, because I know that me and Zach very much disagree on a couple of them. So we just want to see where, where Chris kind of lies um, we will kind of move through them chronologically, but you know we're, we're going to end up jumping back and forth if we want to make points about certain things. Um, and hopefully this might shed a bit of clarity on, on both parties as to why they kind of feel these way about these films. So we'll start with the 2018 release of Halloween, just called Halloween, but it is obviously a sequel to the 1978 original. It gets rid of the entire timeline of every other sequel apart only the original counts as a direct sequel to the original film um this is definitely the least divisive out of all of them you know in terms of like critical um reception so again i want to get fresh eyes initially on these so chris you you watched this for the first time what what did you think of of following 2018 yeah so i think it's good to to start with this one i mean it's going to happen with the order anyways, but I feel like this is the safest one, you know, like when they, when they remade star Wars uh, episode seven and they just kind of redid like the first star, like they redid a new hope. Um, Like this feels like they, you know, these, this was a love story to the original Halloween movie where they, it's clear that David Gordon green and uh, Danny McBride, which still cracks me up that he's a writer for horror movies. That guy's such a goofball. Um, but I, I like his comedy, but it's just funny to me that he's writing these, but, um, uh, they obviously love the original franchise. So I think this was a, like, you know, let's, let's make a movie that they felt I'm going to assume they felt always needed to have been made. Um, so not, not too much to say. I liked it. I think it's a, if you're a fan of horror movies or, or just the Halloween franchise in general, I feel like you would definitely like this one. Have you all heard of any strong contingents of people that really hated this for, for a reason or some reason? Yeah. So probably the biggest contention I've seen is now Halloween has a good habit of liking to hit the reset button. Things mm-hmm. get weird. They're hitting the reset button. That's just how mm-hmm. it's always been. Mm-hmm. But it's always reset back to the same place. Halloween too. Now to properly do this, they had to take out Halloween 2 because of really just one part of where it's confirmed that Michael Myers is 
Laurie Strode's brother. Um, I think they didn't really have any interest in exploring that familiar storyline, but that's such a like fan favorite. Halloween 2 is loved by so many that I think some people were just never going to be okay with 2018, and that is a complaint I see a lot, is it's pointless uh, if they don't have Halloween 2, because some people like it better than the first one. Uh, I find Halloween 2 a little just kind of okay-ish. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been one who's in love with it, uh, but yeah, that's kind of been the biggest knock against it from what I've seen. Yeah, and I'm the same with Zach. I don't, I don't love Halloween 2. It's fine. I just think Michael Myers is a bit too Terminatory in Halloween 2. Um, he doesn't really, yeah, they're yeah, he's not really the same Michael Myers as we saw in the first film. So I'm not too hot on Halloween 2. So I didn't mind them retconning all the rest of them. Um, I, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that. Uh, I, I like Halloween 2018 a lot. Um, I find that it was updated, but it's also very respectful. So kind of to your point, Chris, you know, they're making what they thought would be a good Halloween movie. And a lot of that involves sort of rethreading, you know, the plot points of the original you know, it's set up, Michael escapes, kills some teenagers, him and Laurie Strode fight off. Obviously, they in they, they subvert a lot of expectations. They change a lot of things or change things around, you know, to be kind of like a callback or a reference. And, you know, I had fun with it. I, I have fun with it the same way that I have fun with The Force Awakens. That's definitely like I, I really don't like the Star Wars sequels, um, but I can... I can live with the force awakens because it yeah. feels familiar. It feels like yeah. it belongs in that universe. Right. And it's the same with Halloween 2018. Did it rewrite the book on horror history? No, but it's a fun update that's respectful to the original, but still, you know, has its own charm to it as well. I think it's a very, very solid film. Um, but I can, I can understand why, why, why people maybe think it's too safe or whatever, but I, I, I don't really, I think that's a bit of a silly argument calling a film too safe. Like they made a good film. Why are you still complaining? And um, they made a good solid movie. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, this was important for green while green is known for his horror. I mean, not his horror, but he's known for his comedy. Um, he's kind of been a jump around a lot of different genres through his career. He started with George Washington and he's done a lot of indie dramas and uh, he's done, tons of comedy now and i think this was probably kind of a good let me dip my toes into horror sort of thing like you know if you're going to kind of go a little weird with it like we'll talk about soon with kills and especially ends you know you probably want to like kind of get yourself familiar with it and i think that was a big part of it too because there was always plans to do more than one but they were kind of told hey make sure the first one's any good before you you know do more yeah and I, I think that was important for them to just kind of uh, figure out how horror works. And that's always interesting, too, is when you get these guys who are from outside the realm of horror to come in and do their own take on it. Because they can things get a little weird, but not in a bad way. Like, you're like, oh, that's not real as typical as you think it would be um, within the genre. And I mean, obviously, they like the Halloween series, there's so many Easter eggs within the whole yeah. thing. It's ridiculous the amount, like they even got a resurrection, like Easter egg in there. So obviously they're fans of the series, but still do, watching it and filming it are always going to be separate things. So yeah, yeah 18, it, it, it is what it is. Like it, it's, it's fun. It's well done. Um, it was probably number three in my ranking until the last couple of years. So I have a very fond love of it. 
Well, and, and just as a segue, maybe, but I mean, I think, you know, Halloween and then Halloween Kills definitely feel like part of that same world. Like, it feels like they wrote them either together or, you know, very, very similarly, like, linked in, in the way that they told those stories. Yeah, I think there, there, there was, you know, I know we haven't got the kills yet, but I think there is like this, watching them back to back, the best way I tell people to watch kills is to watch 78 watch 2018 and then watch kills because i think you get the most out of it from that because there is like this energy that just keeps building and building and building and i think that's intentional um but yeah yeah i don't want to get too far before we're done with 2018 but i i feel i feel like there yeah there is a good link there between them yeah like we'll we'll jump into into kills in a second like the one thing that makes me um makes it harder for me to like kills and ends is because I feel like the ending of 2018 is just so perfect. Like we talk about allowing Laurie to have a cathartic ending and she has a cathartic ending. And then they're like, oh, we better make some more films. That's, that's what, that's one thing that makes it hard for me to enjoy kills and ends as much because it just makes that really fantastic cathartic ending in, in 2018, just kind of pointless uh, and it just take like that was that was something I I really I loved the ending of 2018. I just I thought it was perfect. So I, I do the think fact there that is... the two films exist. It just kind of it ends up taking it that away from me a little bit. I, I do think there is still a a good sense of catharsis, but maybe not in the same way as it was like when it was its own thing. Obviously, you know the whole defeating evil. I mean, people seen slasher movies; they know how this goes. I don't know how much of a spoiler any of this is. <laughs> um, but it, the, the the catharsis of you know uh, of more of a familiar uh, catharsis in the sense that you know she was so estranged from everyone and it sucks to say basically the reason she was able to get a connection back to her family was because she was right all along and that someone really was going to come kill them and that can kind of be a weird message when you put it too much in perspective but I, I do think there is that because you know I think it is nice to see a little bit more of that familiar stuff as the next two films go on. And it really is set up more here in 2018 uh, because everybody is so on edge between the three generations of Strode women. Mm. One thing that I do like that they kind of retconned, they, they allude to it in 2018, but they don't really confirm it until kills. And this is how we can segue into kills. If we like was actually making Laurie's Laurie's connection to Michael pretty much non-existent. It's so, connected because she's connected because she feels connected. Yeah, exactly. So in 2018, you know, Michael doesn't break out and you know to, to come after. Like that's that's how it's always been in every Halloween sequel that Laurie Strode is in. It's Michael's hunting down Laurie because obviously they establish a family connection in Halloween too. That's why they've always done that. They didn't have that reason for Michael to come and hunt down Laurie in 2018 because they retconned that. So. The writers did a really smart thing and rather than kind of have to try and shoehorn a reason for Michael to want to hunt down Laurie 40 years later when they, you know, would hardly, you know, he would hardly recognize her was they said, actually, let, let's not make Laurie as important to this, you know, in a way that's still obviously respectful to her character. She's been anticipating this this whole time. But, you know, if the if the crazy doctor hadn't ended up driving them to Laurie's house they would have been very unlikely to have even met each other unless Laurie had sought him out. Yeah. And so, she did repeatedly throughout the film too. Like she, she comes so close to him throughout the night 
and he just walks away from her every time like exactly yeah that's what that's what i thought was great and they they really sort of they really honed this down in halloween kills so we can we can kind of move on to halloween kills now if we like obviously halloween kills kind of takes plot points from halloween 2 and halloween 4 so they have the halloween 2 plot point being that laurie spends the majority of the time or well practically the entire time in in the haddonfield hospital recuperating from the previous night and then it also takes the mob aspects of halloween 4 and kind of puts them together so in halloween kills throughout most of the spent time spent in the hospital everyone's like michael's coming michael's coming to hunt laurie we gotta make sure you know we gotta make sure the hospital's all battened down all this kind of stuff and then he doesn't he never arrives at the hospital he never goes to the hospital at all you know we, we find out that's not what he does he just he always just returns home instead it's not it's not about laurie at all which I thought was actually a really, really cool thing to do with their story. It was a, a retcon that I that I was able to get behind um, because it it was always going to be difficult, as I said before, it was always going to be difficult to find an organic way to get them back together without Laurie just going and hunting them down. That wasn't really going to be practical to do in Halloween Kills because she's obviously horribly, she's a horribly injured older woman. Um, she can't just get up as we see that in the film she can't just get up and go hunting them down so this was a really good way of of change of making the film make sense first of all and also making it a, just an interesting dynamic in the story but this maybe real quick because I, I know uh zach i definitely want to have you speak on this because i, I kind of have a preview of your take which i'm excited to hear more about but this is my favorite thing about the first two films here in this trilogy as you say um the, the, there's this idea that Michael Myers represents evil. That's been present even before this new series, right? Yeah. Like he's this kind of metaphor for evil and like the fear that bring, he brings into a community and into an individual or whatever. And so um, I like the way that they did this here where they showed the, I think they did an excellent job in the first two movies of showing the human side of what would what is one possible way that the world and an individual would react to having that amount of trauma early in their life. Like, I like the fact that they made her this conspiracy theory recluse who's like training herself with guns ready. She's, her, her entire life is just getting ready for this fight, right? She's, I like the fact that they took it in this, like she's estranged herself from her family. Like, like <clears throat> nothing is more important to her than safety of, of, from, from evil, which is, if you think about that in terms of the metaphor, it's such an impossible thing to build your, like it, it just leads to a, a bad, a poor quality of life. If that's the way you're structuring your entire existence, right? Yeah, if all you're doing, fear. living in fear constantly, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think I love, I, I like the way that they did that. And I like the way that they made Judy Greer's character. I think that's probably what the daughter of Laurie Strode would be like. She rejects it. She doesn't feel that fear personally. Like there's even that comment in one of the one of the movies where the kids like, yeah, but like if you think about it in terms of history, that Michael Myers isn't that bad. You know, it's like it's just yeah, it was in the first film. Yeah, first one. Yeah, yeah. So I like that they 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 actually kind of even in the writing they they took this a generation away from 1978 and said that fear doesn't fear that fear doesn't feel as as present and as near as it was anymore so I, I thought that was quite brilliant actually 
and you know it's one of those things i think that has been tough for you know through the years of them doing many of these sequels and there's always this sense that filmmakers always feel like they have to kind of explain Michael's evil in some way. And by in hint in, and by doing that, it usually like lessens how scary he really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I've appreciated about all three of these um, is how unfiltered, I guess, un- I don't know if unfiltered is the right word, but it's just how simple the evil Michael is really is like there is, you know, you really don't get a sense of, reason with anything which i always you know that's always been a problem with the other sequels was he's going after his family he has that thought process there but when he goes through different like you know in 2018 he has that they have that long take where i just kind of call it the halloween tune segment where they he goes and through different houses and kills people yeah. and especially in uh halloween kills where he doesn't really have a method to the madness beyond he's just going home. We don't really know why um, beyond that a six-year-old would probably want to go home, you know, if they're mentally that way. Um, But it's interesting because you can sit there and come up with theories of why he does things, but not necessarily understand it. And I think that was just such a good way to go about this to kind of keep him still scary. And of course uh, the actor who plays Michael uh, James Hugh Courtney does a fantastic job. Um, especially in kills. I think he gets, he definitely gets the most to do there. There's one thing that just to kind of build on what you're saying, there's one thing I like about kills. I think it comes through in Halloween a little bit, but more in kills where it's the, the murders are vicious. Like they, they turn up the speed and the power of him just a little bit. Not, they don't quite make him supernatural, but he's just, you see that viciousness in the way that he does his, uh, that he finishes his kills. And I think that is important for the way they're telling those stories. It's almost like, you know, I think we joked about trying to bring up um, Marvel movies in every episode. It's, it's that same style as the way Captain America punches. It has an impact because the way they do the editing and the sound, it's like, it's just, it feels like a strong punch. And I think that I, I like the way that they did that here. It's just like, you can like I felt like there's no way this person's gonna live. <laughs> like there's no way they're getting out of it. Like when he yeah, comes, he like attacks. And, and you know, I think you know, you, it could also be looked as kind of its own version of Rob Zombie's versions of Halloween, which were very criticized for being overly brutal. And it's interesting because while I don't think it works in the zombie films, I think it works particularly well here. And there's almost like it does, it lacks a mean spiritedness that I think comes from zombie films. Like it's tough to not talk about mean spiritedness when you're talking about slasher movies and violent deaths and stuff. But I don't know. I, I think it's, I don't know if it's the humor that comes across because I do think Halloween kills is yeah, I not unintentionally hilarious. I think it has a lot of humor in it that is very much intentional to not make it mean spirited. Yeah, I definitely think some of it is unintentional. <laughs> Tommy Doyle, everything that comes out of his mouth. Um, but um, yeah, I think that offset of, of some sort of comedic moments. But then I also think it's just not as grimy. Like Rob Zombie's films are just very grimy. Um, that's I think that's what adds to to the sort of... Um, this, oh, what's the word? You know, just the goriness and the veracity of the kills. Just that griminess kind of really... It's like like we talked about earlier with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, how the way it's filmed makes it so much more horrible than the actual things are, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and zombie films are kind of like that, but in a bad way. Um, whereas there's a lot more of a sheen and a polish to the Gordon Green movies. 
So I don't think they feel as mean-spirited because of that. Um, one thing I'll say with Kills, so I didn't really care for Kills when it came out. Um, I wasn't one of the haters. I wasn't like going on Letterboxd and rating it one star. I was just kind of like, meh, that was just a bit weird. Um, and I rewatched it. I rewatched it straight after I finished Halloween Ends because I was flabbergasted and I felt like I needed to try and I, I needed to make sense of what I just saw. So I was like, mm. there must maybe there's a hint in here in Kills. So I went and rewatched Kills. I, I didn't hate it. I didn't I didn't love it. Um, I think either side of the mob stuff, which I'm sure we'll have to talk about, Zach, because you wrote such a great piece about it uh, on our website. Uh, I think either side of the mob stuff, it's just good, dumb fun. We can just get to see Michael Butcher people. Um, there's There's nothing too much more to it than that. Um, which I think is fine. Um, I think a lot of people don't like this film because the, the, the small plot it does have is just very cringy. Um, the whole evil dies tonight mob stuff. A lot of people find that very cringy. I'm kind of the same, but I know that you have a very good um, sort of, uh, you, have, you have a good analysis for that. Um, so I'll let you speak on that in a second. But um, yeah, I think Kills is just, I, I just think it's fine. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, go home and, and and write a big paper on it. I don't think there's a lot of stuff maybe to say about it. It's just, if you want to watch Michael kill some people, then yeah, go watch Halloween Kills, literally in the freaking title. Um, it does feature one of the absolute stupidest movie deaths I've ever seen put on film, though where he like kicks the door at the woman holding the gun and oh, she shoots wow, herself in the awesome. face. That is so, it's so <laughs> it <is> dumb. Amazing. <laughs> it's, so, it's so stupid uh, that it is funny. Um, that's another moment where it's just kind of like, maybe, I don't know if they intended it to, to make you laugh, but you can't not kind of go, <laughs> that was dumb. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, it's a very, it's a very manic film. There's, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. There's a lot of cringy stuff in it. I think the performances are very mixed. So like you have, you have um, uh, Judy Greer, I think is very, very good in the film. Alison's pretty good in it. I like a lot of the, uh, um, I, li- I like what they did with um, Lonnie and his son. I can't remember his name, Cameron. Um, yeah. I like them and I think they're all good. The, the actor who plays Lonnie, I think it has a lot of charm to him. Um, it's it's nice seeing that character's development from the dickhead little buddy in in the original Halloween to this, you know, seems like he, pre- he seems like a pretty nice dude. Uh, seems like a good guy to go have a beer with. So I, I like that that character development that we got like in a forty year jump. Tommy Doyle annoys the crap out of me, but I like Lindsay. Um, so I think I don't know. It's it's weird because obviously the actor who plays Tommy Doyle, what's his name again? Michael Anthony something. Michael Hall. Anthony Michael Hall. I always mix him up with the guy who played Dexter. Uh, they have similar names um like he's obviously an accomplished actor you know he's had a career to span you know 30 plus years but i don't know there's just something really goofy about him in this film that just kind of rubs me the wrong way um but yeah i i find i'm gonna stop talking about kills now as i want to get let zach have his take on it but it's a very manic film for me there's like so many things in it where like i will like it one second and then the next second i'm like oh for fuck's sake uh, and it just, it just, I just have that internal struggle throughout the whole film. But if I was to put it, I think I, I, when I did my most recent rating on it, I think I gave it like three and a half. I maybe gave it four if I was being kind that day. I don't remember. I think in comparison to ends, I probably ended up giving it a four. Um, but I definitely, I, I have time for it. I, it's, I would rewatch it happily again because it's, it's, it's a bit of fun. You get to watch some cool kills. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely understand because there's a lot of people who don't like Hall's portrayal of Tommy. And I actually, I went to go see the first Halloween in the big screen. It was a great moment for me. Finally got to see it on the big screen. One of the things I was thinking about as I was watching it is, you know, you kind of take Tommy from 78 and you kind of think about him. And I actually really like how they go about that. And that's why I kind of put there so much importance to, you know, because I, I think while, you know, we look at Kills as this bridge between 2018 and Halloween Ends, I also think it's a good bridge between 78 and 18, uh, because obviously it has the flashback sequences, which are very much complimented as they should be. Um, yeah, they're amazing. Sorry, I yeah. should have brought that up there. They're, that's, that's actually one of my favorite parts of the film. Those When I watched that first and I saw Donald Pleasance, I nearly teared up. It was yeah. just such they an did amazing such a good job. So unexpected. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, I think when you look at that bridge and you see like 78 before seeing kills, one of the things I like is it feels very natural to Tommy. Like while we think of Tommy as this sweet little boy, like from that, and I mean, you know, he was, they, they bring, they, they kind of go into like the kind of this one incident for him where, you know, even before he's attacked by Michael Myers, he's still obsessed with the boogeyman. Like everything consumes him about the boogeyman. And it's cool to see that taken into a sense of, you know, to the extreme, because everything in Kills is pretty much taken to that extreme, uh, very over the top in that sense. But, it, it, and to me, it kind of helped because I was like, I don't think Tommy's necessarily supposed to be likable. Um, I think it's supposed to be kind of a foil to Michael in a sense who Hawkins uh, talks about as this mind of a six-year-old and the body of a man and the part, mm -hmm. uh, part of a beast, whatever, however he phrases that. And Tommy's kind of the same way, like, he's not he's emotionally stumped as a, you know as a young boy like he he can't get over the boogeyman um and i think that's a really interesting method for him because it's almost like that guy you see in high school who you know can sit there and say he can kick anyone's ass but in reality that's not how it goes um he puts a lot of a tough persona on because he just doesn't want to be afraid and i think that's just kind of a cool element to go to even though yeah tommy can be annoying but I think it makes sense from what we see of him in his first appearance as well. I, I, I like the way you're going with that. One thing I, I will say as they, I, let's, I, I liked Kills as well. Um, uh, pro probably in between Adam and, and you, Zach. Uh, I, I, I liked it, I think, quite a bit. The only thing I don't, <clears throat> don't like that they brought up in Kills and then they really spend time on in Ends is this notion that the town hates Lori because it's like her, quote unquote, like her demon or her boogeyman. Um, I know what they were trying to do there. I get it. I don't think they pulled it off writing wise. I didn't, I, like, that was the only complaint. Like, I, I think Kills was, I, like, I'm not, I, I like the movie overall. So this is not a major detracting, you know, point for me here, but I just, I, I felt like I, I I see what they were trying to do, but maybe they didn't quite get there for me. Like it's it's too much vitriol directed towards this woman who I, I don't think that would happen in real. I think that for for a series, I think that was rooted in trying to show how these characters evolve over time. That that piece to me was like a bit too far. 
I, I think, you know, but I think part of that's also kind of the disconnect as well, right? Like for the people who didn't experience Michael Myers 40 years ago, you know, and they kind of bring it up and end. So I won't bring it up too much, but it's like, you know, you have like radio shock jockey saying things like, you know, she, uh, she tempted a, a, a mentally ill man or, you know, of course there's going to be that idea that every single doctor that wasn't or analyzer who wasn't Donald Pleasant, Sam Loomis would say, uh, well, you know, he just says, Hey, he's pure evil, leave him alone. While everyone else is like, let's pick and prod at him. And in that, in that extent, that's what everyone believes has happened to him is that Lori is part of that picked and prod and did this to him in a sense. Uh, even though it's really everyone else, like his other doctor, um, Dr. Sartain, and you have the podcasters doing the exact same thing, not leaving well enough alone, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I don't know. I it. I mean, for, for a horror movie, a slasher movie rooted in this borderline supernatural guy that's very difficult to kill, I guess <laughs> I don't mind stretching reality a little bit, but the only reason I'm kind of reacting to it is I think like because they're rooting this the premise and how people would react. Um, I feel like maybe that writing on that particular part was a bit weak or like they, I don't know I, that 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 one for me it, especially knowing where ends goes and I know we're, we'll jump there in just a second but um, I think they they maybe over indexed on that piece of it in my mind like the thing that was nice about Halloween was that it was this pure kind of slasher flick. And then I think as they were building out this world of Halloween kills and the backstories for the characters and the groups, I like a lot of that. But I think as maybe part of that, I don't agree with where they took that part. I don't, do you, and I, do you yeah. think that that they were maybe pressurized by these by the sort of surgence of psychological, they call it elevated horror. I think it's the stupidest term in, in film. Uh, but it's what's kind of known as elevated horror, these kind of psychologically driven horror films that have, you know, has so much critical acclaim in the last few years. Do you think maybe there was pressure to, to have some sort of social commentary in this slasher movie? Especially I mean, I, considering I'd it's Blumhouse as well, who've kind of put out a lot of these elevated horror films the last few years. The only thing that kind of makes me hesitant to say that it could have been was just because I think that's pretty present with green and a lot of his stuff anyway like he's he's kind of a messy director anyway like and i don't say that as you know an insult to him i think he's just not the most precise director but i think he always has something he wants to say in most of everything he does and i think he even has that in 2018 to an extent um i would say probably maybe fits more naturally in 2018 than it does the other two but i don't think it's unlike him in that sense yeah it just feels kind of shoehorned i get where chris is coming from it doesn't feel organic it feels very shoehorned in but it's actually so to your point and i know we have to have to get talking about ends here but this Mm -hmm. was so halloween just had him and danny mcbride as writers right but then this brought in scott teams yeah 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 yeah. scott teams so it's possible that he was a part of this. And then the other one ends had a different team of writers. So it's, it's hard to know, you know, the backstory of why those writers were there, but it very well could be, you know, Bloom or one of these, or even the Akkad family. I don't know. It could be somebody that wanted that and, um, and asked for that extra voice. 
which um, the first one, uh, 2018, also has, I think his name is Jeff Fadley. I want to say is how you say his name. He was the because I know Gordon Green talked about he wanted to have a different writer with him and McBride through each film. Uh, oh, you're you're right. You're right. It did have yeah. a, a third writer. You're right. Yeah, and I, I know Ends has four, but they brought in the, one of the writers is who did the novelization for Kills. He was one of the writers for Ends, um, and I can't think of who the other guy is right off. I always find that a really weird creative decision. I'm sorry to start going on about the, the Star Wars sequels again, but that was like the main problem with the Star Wars sequels that they had different writers on each film trying to do different things and explore different mm-hmm. themes that ended up just contradicting each other. Um, and I think this ends up happening in, in this trilogy as well. There's a lot of things that are kind of incohesive throughout each film. Uh, we better kind of move on to end. So, and, and this kind of ties into my point here. So we have... In, in the end of Halloween Kills, Michael just goes on like the biggest possible rampage. It looks like he's down and out for the count, but he just ends up like killing like the entire 15-person mob that has just surrounded him with all kinds of weapons. And then Halloween ends, starts with a time jump. Um, it jumps forward a year the following Halloween, then it does another time jump to another few years later. So I'm going to just start with Halloween ends I am sorry. I, I don't like Halloween ends. I am one of those people. I understand what they were trying to do. I, I get the idea behind it. I just don't enjoy it. Um, so I, that's, I'll, I'll just kind of put a pin in it there just as my little sort of in, start into this. But um, obviously this is a, it's a pretty new film listeners. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to skip ahead a little while because we are probably going to end up talking about spoilers and stuff. Um, but Obviously, Halloween ends, uh, begins with obviously the, introducing the character of Corey, Corey Cunningham, who accidentally kills a little asshole kid. Um, and he just kind of becomes the town pariah. I think a lot of problems, well, maybe not all, a lot of problems. One problem that I have with ends could have been solved by having that first scene in Halloween ends be a tag of Halloween kills. Uh, do you guys understand what I mean by that? So I feel like the 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 insertion of Corey in this last film of the trilogy and try and give him, you know, make him a character we actually even give a shit about all in one film is just really messy writing for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like if they had at least shown this at the end of ends i might have been more behind it because then i'll be kind of waiting a year to see what happens to Corey, rather than be having to try and care about this dude all in the space of you know two hours well i definitely agree to this extent of i think enjoyment of this film is going to come down to how well you kind of can back the Corey storyline now, for me, I actually liked it better than the final 20 minutes. I was, I'm way more into uh, the Corey storyline than I thought I would be. I was very hesitant when they released the trailer and it kind of became obvious there was going to at least be some type of copycat uh, because we've all seen how bad that can go, especially when you look at like Friday 13, Part 5 and things like that. Um, that can be kind of a scary plot point to put in a slasher film. Um, but I ended up really, really enjoying it a lot. I thought Rohan Campbell did an awesome job. Um, I think once he is yeah. in full getup, I think he becomes a very intimidating Michael Myers, and I think they really sold that well. 
Um, and I just, he's one of those people I have, you know, he's as a character, I do feel sorry for him and you don't really want to, but you, he, he's kind of that interesting, you know, if Tommy Doyle was kind of an emotion, like a, a that foil and kills Corey is that kind of foil because while Michael is kind of like this accidental evil, he is, he was, you know, he wasn't created by anything. He just happened. He's, you know, almost like that pure type of evil. Corey is the other end of that, where he was a nice kid who hadn't felt actually created. Um, they created their own boogeyman. And I thought that was such a cool way to go in that sense of, you know, because Zombie tried really hard to explore evil is nurture, evil is created. They still do that in this film, but not at the expense of taking any mystique away from Michael Myers. You know, okay. it's and it's interesting to see them in that sort of Corey using Michael to his benefit. Um, I think that's very interesting because, you know, for Michael, it's knife plus a live person equals dead person. That is the extent of where his mind goes. It's not that he's stupid. It's just that's kind of how he sees life. It's very black and white. Corey's is more of a revenge path. Um, the people who have who have made his life miserable who have kind of caused him to be who he is. And I think that's just such a cool and interesting way to go overall. This is, so, this uh, is, this is kind of some of my problems with it. Um, sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to interject. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Just, just, just while it's fresh in my mind after Zach's been talking about this, this is kind of my problem with this. I'm not one of the Corey haters. I thought the actor was very good. I actually don't have a large problem with Corey's story. Uh, I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't actually have a large, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have a large par- hatred for that or anything like that. But I feel like the filmmakers had an opportunity to commit to Corey. And I felt like they just kind of bitched out of it by if you're going to make, if you're going to try and do like a Halloween three and make a Halloween movie that doesn't feature Michael as like the main antagonist, then you just need to commit to that and just not have Michael at all. I feel like by introducing Michael as this kind of weird quasi mentor, uh, which I, I want to talk about the scene where Corey meets Michael as he's living in the sewers, like Pennywise, the dancing clown. Um, that there's a moment, yeah, when he when he meets Michael, and this is before Corey is actually like properly like killed someone, you know, you know, actually properly murdered somebody. Um, there's like this moment where it's like I don't know if it's like a psychic thing, but after that, anyway, after he meets Michael, he's like suddenly like bonafide evil will kill anyone anything he's just he just goes pure pure to the dark side as they'd say in star wars again to keep bringing that up um and i don't understand why michael doesn't just kill him i know he's weak when he first meets him but like there's moments later on where like he could just kill him and he doesn't um and i just don't really get where the writers were taking michael with this you mentioned uh, you know friday friday 13th part five earlier about the copycat killer and obviously it's it's a very a lot of people groan at that reveal that it wasn't Jason the whole time. But I would have respected the writers more if they had revealed that Michael, you know, had died of his wounds, you know, years ago after Halloween kills. Like maybe make it kind of ambiguous that whether it's Michael or whether it's Corey throughout the film, and then reveal that Michael's been dead the whole time and this is the new embodiment of evil and Corey. I would have respected that. Again, I may not have walked away fully satisfied, but I would have respected it more than what they did, where I feel like they just didn't fully commit to their concept. 
I think having both Corey and Michael and then for some reason Michael not wanting to kill Corey until it's convenient in the last minute. It's just, it's, it's one of those what I was talking earlier about these leaps in writing between the films. It just doesn't compute with everything we've seen from Michael up until now. The only people that Michael hasn't killed until this point are small defenseless children. So he doesn't kill the baby in 2018. He doesn't kill Lonnie in, in Kills in the flashback. Small defenseless children are the only people we see that he doesn't kill when he has the opportunity to do so. So by having him not at least try, you know, not try and kill um, Corey at some point until obviously the sort of end of the film. I don't know. It's, it's a mental leap that I can't make. And I feel like, I feel like there was a lot more potential to either, you know, to, to, I think, I just don't think any, anyone's story was done justice in this film. Okay. So a kind of main problem with it. Yeah. Y'all are being too civil. This movie sucks. This movie's horrible. <laughs> okay, and here's why. No, offense, I was Zach. trying to be nice. I was trying. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> no offense, Zach. But here, here's here's my argument for why this movie is atrocious. First of all, there's a, there's that scene where he like touches him, and all of a sudden he gets like the whole history of Corey. Fuck that. Yeah, the, yeah. That's Stupid. that's the part I was alluding to. Just like, yeah. I just don't I don't get that. I don't understand Stupid. what's happening at that stage. Yeah, that's lazy writing. Like you don't you don't put that in without any explanation or any context or any history. I think what they were probably trying to say was like he recognizes the evil in him, and so they're like gonna go have like a father son relationship or something. But stupid. Then the whole scene where like they hate Lori, they hate Lori, they hate Lori, and then they there's a the one of my favorite scenes probably of any slasher movie. I've ever seen is an end where he's up uh, where, where Michael's up on the chop block and she puts knives in his hands and she's like the terrorizer. She's the one who's like doing the killing. I think that is on an Island. One of the favorite moments of any horror film I've probably seen in the last like 20, 30 years. Like I love that scene to death. But, I hate it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. But they take that, they put him on a car and then all of a sudden there's a fucking like procession of people that are like walking after the car being like, like having their moment of catharsis. And then they pass him up into the, the grind. Like, no, the whole ending I think is horrible. I hated it. I hated it so much. Like the, the, there's two things you have to have in a, in a, in a Michael Myers movie or like a slasher movie. One of them is like a bunch of kills, which I think they generally kind of got right, even though, I actually think they did a good job with the kills with Corey because he's like, although I hated the fact that he became mentored by Michael, I think that was dumb the way they did it. I do like the fact that he was like, teach me. And he was like, he was like, you know, you could see him turning evil. I think he did a great job with that. Um, but then the other thing you have to have is the, the, the possibility that he comes back, that Michael comes back. Right. And like, there's no uh, short of going Jason X on, on this franchise. Like or just doing a reboot, I guess, which they could always do. But they, he's done, and like I hated that <laughs> because, like, you know, this 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 franchise, Jason, like, they're they're never done. But like, this was a finale. Like, the Halloween series is done unless they do like a you know hard reboot or something. I mean, it, there's there's been five timelines. They can always. Do <laughs> timeline. And I, I mean, they. They don't have a choice but to do a new timeline anyway, because Blumhouse, the, the rights have left Blumhouse. This was the last film they had the rights to do. So they don't well, have a choice but to reboot it again anyway. 
I, I yeah. do want to comment on the whole. I know. I know a lot of people were very upset with you know we seeing the destruction of Michael's body. Um, I actually was really taken aback by that, and it was one of the reasons why I like sat on the movie for a bit before I really knew how I feel because you just don't see that. Like you don't see this complete question mark. I mean, even going back to like Halloween H two O, they decapitate him, and before they wrapped up filming, they already filmed the explanation of how he lived. And the convoluted <laughs> mess you've ever seen. Yeah. And I really respected them sitting there. They had his mask off. They had, there was no question mark. This, this isn't going to be, you know, it lives up to that name. Like, I, I mean, it's weird seeing, you know, complete destruction of Michael. And I think that is a tough field to swallow, but I also think it's a necessary jump that a filmmaker should make if they're trying to have a complete trilogy of something like you know, I'm this, not sitting... this 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 comes back to what i was mentioning earlier though but the ending of 2018 if we're talking about like they have to have the last, the last 20 minutes of this film have to happen because they have to give laurie a cathartic ending with michael my problem is the ending of 2018 is better than the ending of halloween ends i'll disagree there just because like i like the ending of 2018 but i mean we also don't see michael die like we actually see that he's lived at the end like when they sh- they pan back to like the basement on fire, he's nowhere to be seen. So you. That's what's going- great about it because he's the shape. That's what's so. It, it just it's like the original. It's like it's like nineteen seventy eight. It's just it's ambiguous. That's 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 what I love about it. Whereas this is just like oh he's gone meat grinder okay. And the other the, just real quick on this the other thing uh, just that I didn't like about it the ending was they set up Laurie having like some type of like. Harry Potter and Voldemort type connection to Michael Myers. Like that was the premise, right? Like, like he lives because of her or there's like some, some connection that doesn't go fully explained, but like they kind of encourage each other. So I wanted to see her go in the meat grinder too. Like, like if you're going to kill oh, Michael, I would have been so pissed. Uh, that would have pissed. really pissed people off. They would have pissed me <laughs> off. I was like, why did, we, why did we even come back? We're just going to get to see lawyer, law, uh, Lori completely decimated. Like, uh, yeah, people would have been so no, pissed. <laughs> I'm just saying that they set it up in a way where like they should have both died or like, like they, because there was like some connection there or something like that. So I, I didn't like the fact that, that she lived and he was the one that died. What annoyed me though is how easy it was for her to kill him. Like, was it easy? I wouldn't consider that easy. Well, no, it I happens. Don't... It happens in like five minutes. But I mean, look what she has to do. She has to like yeah. stab him with three different knives, throw a, a refrigerator on top of him, <laughs> yeah, 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 slit yeah. his throat, slit his wrist, She's and he grandma. still rips his hand out from the knife, and then has his arm broken over. Like, I yeah, wouldn't I consider think... it easy. <laughs> it's it's easier than than you know the fact that in kills he was surrounded by 15 able-bodied people with weapons who couldn't put him down i know it's four years later and you know this idea that he is because this kind of idea like he's a vampire where he needs to feed on blood to be powerful or whatever the fuck they were trying to imply well, I mean, that was kind when of he does that weird shuddering <laughs> when he kills the cop and he does that weird shudder and that was I was like, what the fuck is happening? Why does it look? I kind of like that because I thought that was kind of the ambiguous nature of it, right? Like, oh, that, that, that could be adrenaline or that could be what they talked about in kills of that idea is he, is he supernatural or not? I like, uh, yeah, I really yeah. don't know. I, I think we kind of have to wrap this segment up. So I'll just, we'll all give our final one liner on the trilogy. So my one liner is 
I like Halloween 2018. It's it's a serviceable sequel. Kills is fine. Ends just feels like a film of missed opportunities. I feel like they would have had the balls to go one way or the other with it. Um, overall, the trilogy is just very messy. That's that's the only way I can. That, that's my one liner. Messy, messy trilogy for me. Um, just because I Zach, I, I value your opinion more than than any of ours on, on horror films. So I'll just go quickly, and then I'd like to hear you give the right answer here. But <laughs> for me, I think Halloween and Halloween Kills are a nice companion piece, and I think they work well. Halloween Ends, you could talk about missed opportunities. I kind of want to go along that. Like, I think Halloween Ends had my favorite scene, but I do think the scene where Laurie gets to finally kill Michael, but we see how hard it is. It's very important to see that. I, I loved that scene, um, and I loved components of what they did with Corey, and I think they just completely missed on the overall storytelling around it. Um, and so I, that movie sucks. And I think history will be, will not be kind to Halloween ends. Um, although we have, it will have its fans as we're about to hear. <laughs> uh, I'm on the other end. I think ends will absolutely build a fan base over time. I think it's, you know, I think it was very much intended to be the Halloween three. I, I think there's been a lot of love for Halloween three throughout this trilogy. It's, it's why I respect the hell out of it because Halloween three is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the thing we will that all we can do at this point when it comes to Green's trilogy is kind of see see what it is. You know, for me, it was a you know Halloween's my favorite horror series. I love it. I love every timeline to some extent. But I think what you know this one's connected to me a lot, and it's kind of what I've always wanted out of Halloween sequels. And I'll be curious to see how they are because I do like a lot of the risks. David Gordon Green took. I, I think it was nice having somewhat of a thought out trilogy for something for a, a subgenre that's usually we'll we'll go by the seat of our pants and see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was super cool. Uh, I'm really happy for that. And you know, hey, uh, it's not going to be for everyone, but for me, that usually means that they did something interesting, and I'm all for it. So uh, there, I think that'll sum it up for me. So uh, thank you for listening to um, what ended up being a stirring debate on the the recent Halloween sort of uh, sequel trilogy. Uh, You might remember we were talking about witches at some point, so we're going to get back to that. Um, The the second film in our our lineup, our official uh, double feature lineup, was a film made in 1957 by Jacques Tournier, who is an incredible horror director. I mentioned three of his films in... Uh, that Halloween recommendations episode that I did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is one that he made uh, away from Val Luton, who was his uh, very, uh, he it was a producer who worked with a lot during those earlier horror films. This is one he made uh, called Night of the Demon. Uh, it was called Curse of the Demon, I believe in its US release. Um, but I'll give you, I'll give you the breakdown that Letterboxd has. It's a little bit, a little bit lengthy lengthier than I thought it would be. Uh, but American professor John Holden arrives in London for a press conference on parapsychology only to discover that a colleague he was supposed to meet was killed in a freak accident the day before. It turns out that the deceased had been investigating a cult led by Dr. Julian Carswell. Through a skeptic, oh sorry, though a skeptic, Holden is suspicious of the devil worshiping Carswell, but following a trail of mysterious manuscripts, Holden enters a world that will make him question his faith in science. Um, so yeah, it's a bit bit wordy, but yeah, this this was my second time watching Night of the Demon. I didn't love it the first time around, but I liked it a lot more this time. 
um, more because I honed in on the, the noirish aspects that I that we talked about a little bit earlier when we were talking about uh, City of the Dead. Uh, really, it should have been a lot more obvious to me how noirish this was. You know, it stars Dana Andrews, who obviously was in Double Indemnity. It really- stars Peggy Commons, who was in Gun Crazy. So it has noir actors in it. Um, and it's by Jacques Tournier, who, although more well-known for his horror films, he did make some film noirs as well, Nightfall being the, the probably the most sort of well-known out, out of those. Um, but again, Zach, I can't remember. Yeah, no, you had definitely had seen Night of the Demon before, because I think we, we had talked about it previously on the podcast many, many moons ago. So, Chris, I'm once again going to go to you uh, for your initial sort of thoughts on Night of the Demon. All right, cool. So uh, let me just quickly say this film is universally beloved. So yeah. They Shoot Zombies has it as the 66th best horror film of all time. Wow. Okay. And They Shoot Pictures have it, it well in the top 1,000 at 740. So um, I, I think that I, I'm assuming this is going to be a love fest. Um, I understand why it's rated so high. I think one of the, you know, one of the things I've always I've only seen a few movies by Jacques Tournier. I, I need to see a lot of the ones he's famous for. Um, but, you know, he's an incredible, like, uh, technical director. Like, he, he's a good, great storyteller, really knows how to put together a movie. Um, and I think that's all on display here. Um, I think, you know, if, like, this this is a good movie. I like, I love, uh, you talked about that uh, nostalgia feeling earlier. We, we kind of got into that, like, why certain movies feel good around Halloween season. I immediately can kind of get behind uh, when they when they build, I don't know if it's stop motion or however they did the effects for the monster here, the demon here. Yeah, I, it looks like it was probably stop motion. I think they originally wanted your man Ray Harryhausen to do it, but he was unavailable because he's doing a Sinbad movie. Okay, I was going to say, it feels very Harryhausen, right? And I, I, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. I like it. Um, so this movie for me was a big hit. Um, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of reasons why here in a moment but what about y'all i i just really like uh tourney air that's how you say his name right am i wrong mm-hmm. yeah i think he's american so yeah tourney air that's what i would say um i really like him i i think it's fascinating like how much of the stuff he did was uh, almost like a basis of stuff like you know i walk with a zombie obviously that's more hoodoo voodoo type zombie stuff but i mean that he's a very early example of that the leopard man such an early example of slashers cat people is great um just a super talented guy and i i think one that's just stupidly underappreciated like in like even in horror circles of how great he was and how formative he was he, he he's kind of like james whale like i think james whale while gets a decent amount of appreciation it's still way under what he deserves when it comes to yeah. like foundation of horror yeah, um, I agree. And, yeah, Wales, Whale, Whale, and Turnier are sort of like the early auteurs of horror. And you know they, and with like we look at Night of the Demon, it, it has. I don't know if I don't know if this uh, comparison is going to make sense, but the whole time I watch it, I think of uh, Nightmare Alley. Like I guess it's that noirish kind of yeah. like superstition type thing, like. Um, kind of seeing that and the villain uh for the film who i cannot think of his name right now the main villain of the film is so great he's awesome he does he eats a lot of scenery and it's yeah it's watch yeah carswell the the, the cult leader it's really, yes really good. yeah that's the one yeah it's just just to sort of piggyback on what both you guys are saying it's just a really well-made film it's really well put together it has a tight cohesive story it's 
yeah, there's just a lot of things to love about this film. The cast is obviously great. There's there's one thing in this film that I absolutely, utterly despise. This is like this is like a 10 out of 10 movie, apart from this one aspect of it. And it's the fact that they show the demon in like the first two minutes of the film. And I know the Turnier hated this as well. Um, I think I actually read in my, when I was doing my research that he didn't want the demon showed at all. And he even said that any scene where you've seen the demon, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. I, I, I didn't want to show the demon at all. He wanted to be much more ambiguous. Um, and I, I think it kind of hurts the film a little bit. The reason the, the producer of this film wasn't Val Luton, Val Luton would have never shown this demon either, as we saw in Cat People and Leopard Man. He very much also agreed with Turnier in terms of not showing the, the villain straight up, at least until the end of the picture. Um, but the, the producer of this film... Uh, it was a, a British guy, I can't remember his name, something Chester, but he, his idea was that if we showed the demon early on, it would create suspense because we would know everything is real, but Dana Andrews' character would, would, wouldn't, he wouldn't believe it was real. And I think it actually does the opposite because this film is such a great, you know, it has great themes of like, you know, faith versus science, believing and non-believing, all that kind of stuff. And I think showing the demon at the start kind of takes away a lot of that suspense I think if they left it more ambiguous by not showing the demon straight up, kind of like how they did when Dana Andrews' character gets chased by the demon through the woods, but we don't actually see the demon. It's just smoke. Um, a lot of the things that happen up until the very end of the picture when Carswell himself becomes victim to the demon, a lot of the stuff leading up to that, Dana Andrews' character tries to make a logical explanation and he succeeds like 99% of the time. So, I feel the fact that they showed the demon so early in the film, right at the very start, it kills the suspense. And if they didn't show that, if they made it more ambiguous throughout the whole film, I think those themes of like faith versus science and believing and non-believing, it would have been, I just think it would have been a, a much more, a much better way to show off those themes, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. as you no, go ahead, Zach. I was going to say, yeah, the, the kind of the issue you have, because I actually don't have issues with them showing it at the end. I uh, actually like Yeah, it. I agree. I, I don't like what you say the, the first couple minutes, because it kind of makes him feel like an idiot. He's not, because he's making rational points, but in the audience, I'm like, well, he's an idiot, because he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it really <laughs> undermines his character the whole way through. Um, if, if you don't show the monster early, then this becomes almost like a like a shock corridor type of movie, you know, that Sam Fuller movie from a few years later yeah. where you're trying to figure out what's real the whole time, right? Like you're, you're, you're wrestling with that as the audience. If that's left open, it's probably a better movie, right? I would, I would think so. I, I would, I would have no problem giving this like five stars, whatever. If, if it, had, if it had just allowed for some ambiguity, you know, that's a huge thing in horror kind of recently in the last sort of, you know, 20 or so years, you know, allowing horror to be a bit more ambiguous. I think if they had done it here, if they had had the foresight to do it, and I think if Val Luton had produced it, then that would have been the case as well. I think we would have been looking, like we'd be talking about Night of the Demon as one of like the all-time great movies. I know it's obviously still very highly regarded as it is, as you mentioned, Chris, but I think it would be even more acclaimed um, if they had allowed it to be a bit more psychologically driven as it is. Because as Zach says, it just kind of makes Dana Andrews' character look like look a bit stupid the whole way even though he's making rational logical scientific choices throughout this movie everything he says all the sort of things that happen you know can be coincidence or the way the paper tries to escape from him oh well it's clearly just the wind the windows open 
oh, it's going up the chimney. It's obviously a draft from the chimney. You know, he makes logical, clear decisions the whole way through the movie. But then we are the audience are like, okay, just just show us the demon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You know, there's an interesting thing. We talked about 1960, uh, 1957. I can almost see where the producer is coming from. Can I just read off like 10 titles real quick? So The Abominable Snowman, Attack of the Crab Monsters, (laughs) um, The Aztec Mummy, the Black Scorpion, Blood of Dracula, Curse of Frankenstein, um, The Cyclops, uh, From Hell It Came, Ghost Cat of Yonaki Swamp. That's a little bit different. That's a Japanese one. But I was a teenage Frankenstein. I was a teenage werewolf. Incredible Shrinking Man. My, I, there's more. But my point is, like, this this is the environment that this movie came out in, right? So it's almost like I, I can almost understand the producer. Producers are not the creative people, <laughs> typically. That's not that's not what they're known for. So I can almost feel them. Uh, or I can sense them like feeling a pressure to get have this kind of tap into the way what people were expecting to see in some of these movies, right? Yeah, you, you're you're there to see the creature. That was kind of a big part of the '50s, like you yeah, know, atomic monsters and stuff like that. You know, you want you want to feel like you got the audience got something out of it, not left with it. What the hell was that? Right. Right, yeah, right, right. the psychological stuff didn't really come in, I suppose, until the 60s, right? So, like, we're talking about, you know, like, The Innocence. I think that was, like, early 60s. Yeah, I think that um, was 1960. You know, that's that's a, that's a film that, that plays on ambiguity a lot and lets the audience make a lot of decisions for themselves. Whereas Night of the Demon, that decision-making is taken out of your hands in the first two minutes. You're not allowed to have an opinion as to whether it's real or not. Whereas maybe you know into the 60s and obviously it's a lot it's it's very prevalent now but with the innocence and the haunting as well i don't remember what year the haunting was um the you know the adaptation of the of the haunting of hill house um, um, i'm actually just pulling out my blu-ray i can tell you right now i think it was 67 but i that, that could be wrong god i hate the way they designed the backs of stuff where oh 63 63 okay so yeah, a little bit after the innocence. So these are films that allow you to allow the audience to, to try and make some decisions for themselves. Whereas Night of the Demon is a psychological horror film masquerading as a monster movie. If if they didn't, you know, if if they weren't so hammed up on, if the producer wasn't so hammed up on wanting this to be a kind of creature feature monster movie, show the monster, show the demon, blah, blah, blah. This could have been one of the sort of great early psychological horror films. I do want to at least give the credit where it's due because I don't disagree with you in many ways. Um, the demon effect is super cool. <laughs> super yeah, it well is. done. I love it. Uh, like, you know, I get so annoyed with a lot of like demon movies now where it's just a person, you know, speaking in tongues or whatever. Obviously it's very exorcist in that sense. It's kind of nice to see like a physical embodiment of something like that. Like it's super mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's like what you said earlier, like I would have no problem if they showed the demon at the very end. I know yeah. Turnier didn't want to show it at all, but I can live with it just being at the very end because it's a really cool moment at the end when, when the demon is revealed at the train and stuff like that. That's a cool moment. I like that. Um, I could just I could just do without it not being there in the first two minutes. It's like, yeah, it, it just feels like they just, they just threw all their cards on the table. They just shown you their hand as the car as it was dealt and now it's just all the suspense is kind of gone for the rest of the movie you're just kind of waiting for the demon to show up again and what happens in between is you only see the demon if i remember correctly we only see it at the very start and the very end 
yeah obviously we see the smoke kind of midway through but it's very started it's bookended by the demon appearance so in the middle of that there's this great psychological horror film um and a great film noir as well in a sense as, as we kind of spoke about there's a lot of noirish elements in this film so we have this really great movie either side of this i feel like if they just cut out the first part or edit the first part so it doesn't actually show the demon just shows the dude kind of running away and hitting into the you know hitting into the, the telephone pole whatever it was electricity pole you know that that it's such a small edit but i just, I just feel it would change the entire film in a really positive way yeah, and it, you know, it kind of sucks to kind of feel harped on that one point because overall, it's a really, really, really good movie. Like great movie, yeah, yeah for it, sure. Four and a half stars, what I gave it this time around on Letterboxd. It's literally, it's it's just that one, that one small segment that's stopping it from being a five star film in my eyes, anyway. And you know, I, I wonder because this was kind of late in his in his filmography because I mean he started yeah. making in like the twenties and thirties. I mean he'd been around forever. Mm. Uh, I wonder if it, how how this does it because I don't know what the the consensus was when it released. I, for some reason, I just kind of get a feeling it wasn't beloved when it released. That kind of came later. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I almost always wonder how that kind of stuff messes with their legacy too. Because his legacy is really cat people, which is unfortunate because I think of his horror films, it's one of his weakest ones. Uh, as much as I like it's, cat it's people, that out in the pa- out of the past is still regarded one of the best film noirs. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is like he has a lot of good films, and I agree. Like out of the three he made in a row, Cat People, Leopard Man, and I Walked with a Zombie. Cat People is my least favorite of those three as well. Um, still a great film, obviously. But yeah, the remake. Have you ever, the remake was Paul Schrader's remake is actually pretty decent too. I haven't seen it. I know it's on the channel at the moment. They've uh, 80s horror, and I know it's on the channel, but I haven't actually seen it. There's something that you, I'm glad we brought up James Well earlier because there's something that I, I was going to ask you all about, kind of tied to that. You know, because we just saw Frankenstein recently, and I think that we talk about them as auteurs of horror. Uh, there's another angle here I want to just kind of ask you all about. So they, I feel like we talk about quote unquote B movies now, right? And that term obviously came from the back half of a double feature, right? Like the B mm-hmm. movie for mm-hmm. a double feature, the movie that people didn't necessarily go to see. Uh, and I think a part of that, they because there wasn't so much pressure around it, they took more risks and there was more campy stuff, more uh, that's typically where you have like the more riskier plot points and, and crazier monsters and stuff. Um, but I feel like James Well and then Turnier both were kind of making these like B movies, these kind of campy films, but they were very much beloved and, and like in the mainstream, you know, like the, I'm just curious how, if, if y'all are picking up on this at all, or if this is just me, editorializing but I feel like there was a time in in movie history where we didn't really have this separation and like you know these movies with these crazy plot points were coming out as just sort of standard affair like it they I don't think they were viewed differently yeah no well like James Whale basically invented camp um with the old dark house in terms of like camp horror that's like that movie's so great it's so good uh, I, I hated it when I first watched it and then I watched it again and thought it was amazing. It's so funny. Um, he basically invented camp horror um, with that film. Um, I, I see less campness with, um, with, with Turnier's films, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Um, 
I think they do have. He, he plays it pretty straight. Honestly. Yeah, I think they yeah. have pretty serious. Yeah, serious undertones. Like even uh, a lot of his films have kind of maybe silly, maybe maybe sort of silly sort of base plots. But I think the films themselves are, are pretty played straight. Like Cat People, for example. You know, it's a pretty silly silly story, but um, it's it's played straight. And has has some really effective moments in it. Um, but but I agree in terms of what you're saying regarding different types of movies coming out. Um, but yeah, I, I I can't really put a pin to say you know what would have made a film a B movie and what would have made a film an A movie. I assume it's just, it was just down to star power. Um, you know, at this point, Turnier was a, as far as I'm aware, he was well regarded. He worked a lot, so you know they made him the A picture, whereas the B pictures were more for the, you know, people who were just getting into the business. If that makes sense. Now saying that Peggy Cumming. Uh, who who plays the female lead in this film? Her most well known film is Gun Crazy, which is definitely a B picture. And it's a great it's a great B picture, really good film noir. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, mm. So that's not to say there's definitely not overlap between the A and the B. Maybe these kind of films kind of sit in the middle in that sense, where it's not like a straightforward monster movie. You know, like you know. You know some of the ones that were coming out, like I can't remember the titles of them. We you know the ones like the giant bugs and all that kind of stuff in the fifties, like the Blob or something. You know, like that. It it wasn't like a straight monster movie. You know, they wanted to make something a bit more psychologically driven, kind of like it's kind of like a monster movie mixed with like to put both of your both yours and Zach's kind of analogies together. It's kind of like a monster movie mixed with Nightmare Alley. You know that kind of psychological, yeah. pseudo supernatural noir mixed with a monster movie to kind of create something that's completely stands on its own two feet. That you you can't really make the A picture, you can't really make it a B picture either because of the star power involved with Dana Andrews. So it just becomes this little outlier and this kind of film that kind of stands out from the crowd of everything else that was kind of coming out around it. If that makes sense. I think that's a good summary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how does Michael Myers fit into this universe? Uh, this is part of the uh, season of the Witch universe, actually. So uh, there you go. <laughs> I believe Carswell was related to the 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 Irish uh, witch in season of the season of the Witch. I mean, they both use Stonehenge. Yeah, Bauer, That's yeah. okay. That, that you've heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Night of the Demon and Halloween Three: Season of the Witch are in the same timeline. <laughs> Well, now that we've established um, some amazing connections in, in horror movie history, uh, it's time to time to move on, I think, and talk about what we're going to be watching next. So, uh, you know, I know that November is coming up, and, and if I didn't pick a noir theme, I'd have to hear about it the whole month So I, I went from Adam, so I didn't want to do that, even though Adam snuck in two noir films in, in the horror month. <laughs> um, out of respect for you, I still wanted to think of a noir theme. Uh, and I was just thinking about how to make it interesting. And I kind of, you know, under that whole premise of, I mean, it's become a cheesy thing to say now, but be the change you want to see kind of thing. I decided let's, let's pick some noir films that maybe are, are less discussed. And I was trying to think of how to get there. And then I had this idea to um, find some noir films that are directed by women because there's not, there's not a lot of them. Um, and so I thought it'd be kind of fun to do that as a theme. And as I started to dig around, two really popped up. So one of my favorite movies, I don't know exactly where it falls in my top 100. I have to, I'll find out again as I watch it again. 
but Mikey and Nikki from Elaine May, just having Colombo and uh, John Cassavetes chew scenery for 90 minutes or whatever it is, is just awesome. Like, I love that movie. So I, I wanted to do that. That's going to be one of them. And then the other one is a movie that I have not seen, but I'm excited to. I've been hearing about it for years. It's uh, Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker from 1953. Great movie. Great. I can't wait to. I'm glad you've seen it. Zach, have you seen either one of these? I have not. Okay, cool. So if y'all if y'all give the thumbs up, I think those are the two I want to nominate for, for what we see next. Yeah, sounds good. I look forward to rewatching The Hitchhiker. I think it's like only like just over an hour long. But so much happens, and the, the villain's performance like one of the best performances in film history. So I'm looking forward to rewatching it. It's a great film. I haven't seen the other one, but I've heard of it. Um, so look forward to watching that as well. Elaine, Elaine May is just one of these. She comes from a comedy background, and she's just so clever with dialogue. So I think I'm interested to see how y'all react to that. But um, yeah, there we go. A fun episode, y'all. I hope we're still friends. I hope this uh, the disagreement <laughs> didn't, didn't end the podcast. I appreciate y'all's takes even when they're wrong. <laughs>